Well, hello everybody, and welcome to more of our midweek online content. We, as you know, have been starting a series on the Lord's Prayer. We felt that it was a really good time for us to re-emphasize some of the basics that we can cling on to during this difficult time. So a couple of Sundays ago, Tom led us in the opening clause, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's a wonderful combination of a Father who loves us, a Father in heaven who has power and who is holy. And despite his holiness, is still a Father who comes towards us in intimate love. And on Sunday, Mark helped us into the next clause, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's really the heart of the Lord's Prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer, although of course the Lord himself couldn't have prayed it. Because we know he can't pray it because it says within it, forgive us our sins, and he didn't have any. But we call it the Lord's Prayer because it's the prayer he gave us. Really, it's our prayer. And it's our prayer as kingdom agents. We pray it so that the world will be changed. The point of this clause, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is that we're praying that the conditions of heaven would become the conditions of earth. And so as we look around the world and we see injustice and poverty and discrimination, as we see things like sin, sickness, suffering and death, the kingdom prayer is because none of those things are being done in heaven now, that they wouldn't be done or experienced upon the earth either. And as we pray that prayer, as we see the kingdom of God come, then we see all those things which come from the fall being redeemed and reversed. But of course, it's really tough when we don't see it. It's really tough when we pray the kingdom prayer, but it seems that as we look around, things are getting worse. You know, we often are used to progress. We're used to holding sickness at bay through medical advances and through the gifts and skills of the medical professions and the medicines that we're able to be supplied with. We often hold hardship at bay because we live in a fairly affluent part of the world and we've got the safety nets of a welfare state and social security. And that can end up with us believing in the illusion of progress. We sometimes call it utopianism. It's the idea that as humanity just gets more and more enlightened, the world will, come, will become a better and better place. It's the idea of inevitable progress. And of course, that has been really strong in human society in the West at various times, not least actually just before the First World War, the war to end all wars, they said. And of course, as a result of that, people's faith was shattered. And that was the beginning of some of the decline of popular church going as uh, a very significant numerical percentage of the nation. People's faith simply couldn't cope with the idea that the world doesn't always get better. Now for us, we fortunately aren't facing a world war, but we are suddenly facing a global pandemic. And suddenly people don't feel as protected as they were. They don't feel that they can take their provision for granted. Sickness and death has become very real for a lot of people and caused a lot of fear. The shake-up of the world's economic system and the insecurity that people are feeling financially lets them realise that actually we don't live a life where necessarily every single day we're going to be at peace about our provision and what we need to provide for our families. So the question is, 
what happened to the coming kingdom? Was our faith misplaced? Because if we're praying the kingdom prayer, surely we would see things getting better. And does the lack of progress, as we see it, mean that God isn't in charge? Well, what I want to do is, in this talk, pull back and look at a couple of passages from Acts when the early church probably felt the same. They were probably confused as to whether the kingdom of God was advancing or not. Just before Easter, I was asked to speak in an online conference uh, by my friend Yinka Oyakan. Now, Yinka is a Baptist pastor from Reading. He's the um, president-elect of the Baptist Union for 2020-2021. He's also um, the person who started The Turning, which was an evangelistic campaign out on the streets. And he asked me and a number of other charismatic leaders to speak to a conference under the title, The Work of the Holy Spirit in a Time of Distress. And I think that was a great title because so often we think about the work of the Holy Spirit and we relate it immediately to the triumphant things like healing and breakthrough and transformation, which of course the Holy Spirit is intimately involved in all of those things. But what is he doing? in a time of crisis or persecution or difficulty? What is he doing during a pandemic? Well, I'd want to say that any time we have a crisis, there's an opportunity for us to discover more of God. When things are being stripped back, then there's an opportunity for us to embrace some of that as pruning. It doesn't mean that God has sent it, but it is certainly something that God will use. So this is a time for us to rediscover rhythms of intercession, to learn again how to delight in God, to be clear about what a great gospel we have, to understand that we're people who can't be shaken and therefore have something to share with the world as everything is being shaken. One of the things we need to do is to come through this time thinking not about what we've lost and what we're missing out on, but recognising what we have that can never be taken away. So it's an opportunity for us to rediscover the things that we've always had. But it's also the opportunity for us to discover the new things that the Spirit of God is trying to lead us into. And I believe that this crisis hasn't surprised God. And so the things that the Spirit was saying to the church at the end of last year are still the same things that he's saying to us now. In actual fact, a lot of them may be things that we're beginning to hear and understand for the first time because of these new circumstances. So let me take you to Acts chapter 8. And Acts chapter 8 begins in my Bible with the heading, The Church Persecuted and Scattered. And it says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly people buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Now, this obviously is a, a very serious time in the life of the fledgling church. It's a time when the church is scattered. It's a time of mourning and real hardship. It says that Saul was beginning to destroy the church. Now, of course, we know in the New Testament, whenever it says church, it doesn't mean church building. It means the people of God. So this is a really stark statement. I can't think of any other statement in scripture where it says the church was being destroyed. It seems to suggest that Paul was not 
Saul at that time was not just putting men and women in prison, but many of them were being martyred for their faith because the church, meaning the people, was being destroyed. Now, at the same time, those who weren't being arrested and perhaps martyrs were scattered. They weren't able to worship in the way that they were used to. They, as believers of Jesus in the early days of the church, know nothing else than being able to gather around the apostles, to listen to the teaching of the apostles, to share fellowship together. Maybe many people today are feeling a bit like that. We're used to one mode of church and suddenly we've been scattered so that we can't meet in what we're used to. But remember, Jesus said, the church can never be destroyed. He said, I will build my church. Doesn't mean the building, he means the people. I will build my church and not even the gates of Hades will be able to overcome her. And that's what we see. Because in verse four, it says that those who'd been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. What happened is that as they were scattered, Philip just did what Jesus had trained him to do. He went and he preached the word, but he also demonstrated the kingdom, just as Jesus did. Jesus never simply taught. He always then modeled what the coming of the kingdom looked like. That's why throughout the gospels, we see him praying for the sick, delivering people of demons, cleansing the lepers, raising the dead, restoring the fallen. It's not just the words, but it's also the works. And Philip, as one of the apostles, one of the followers of Jesus, did that. And it's worth noting that because it says that when they saw, they paid, a close, they paid close attention to what he said. If we want people to hear, then often we need to demonstrate the signs of the kingdom in deliverance and healing. And what happens is they then are able to believe and they receive the gospel with great joy. But what I really want to focus on is how the Holy Spirit used the circumstances to fulfill the plan. If you think back to Acts chapter one and verse eight, Jesus told them to remain in Jerusalem until they received the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit, they would have power to be his witnesses in Judea, in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now to this point, the gospel hadn't gone out to Samaria. It'd been confined to Jerusalem and Judea. But the Holy Spirit didn't send this persecution, didn't want the Christians to be killed, but he used the difficult circumstance to advance the church into the plan that was already there. And we see more of that because um, more of the same incident happens in Acts chapter 11. We're going to pick up at verse 19. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, in other words, at exactly the same time as a result of the same persecution, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. 
Aren't you glad about that? Because most of us probably don't have a Jewish background and therefore that means us. This is when the gospel came to us, those who aren't Jewish by birth. The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. I think what that shows is not just the Holy Spirit using the circumstances to fulfill the plan, but the Holy Spirit using the circumstances to release the church. Um, some of you may have seen the um, Spring Harvest at Home online conference in the week after Easter. This year, the theme that they were following was the theme Unleashed, looking at how the early church is a group of empowered believers. And I think that was more prophetic than they realized, even at the time when they wrote the material. Because what we need is we need empowered believers. The wonderful thing about this passage for me is it simply says some people, some people, people from Cyprus and Cyrene. They're not named, they're certainly not part of the apostles. This year, when we've had to cancel all sorts of our Christian celebrations and gatherings, maybe this year is going to help us see those gatherings in a fresh light. We'd understand that it's not about the level of production, it's not about a big gathering of lots of people, and it's certainly not about the hero leaders that you need to sit under their teaching, the, the anointed people that you need to receive their ministry, the high-profile worship leaders that are going to take you into God's presence like no one else can. Now, what we need is not more generals. Now, I'm really grateful to God for raising up people, and I've been blessed by their gifts of leadership and their apostolic ministries, and I love that. But what we need is not more generals. Instead, we need more crack troops. What we really need is we need the whole church to realise that we're all crack troops. We're all the elite of God. We all carry the Holy Spirit. And as we receive an understanding of who we are, the church is unleashed into a realisation, not of what we've lost, but of what we have and what we carry, the significance we can have in the world. Actually, that's Ephesians 4 leadership. Those, those who God has raised up with particular anointings and giftings, the point of those ministries in Ephesians 4 the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the shepherd, the teacher, is that they build up the body of Christ. In other words, they pass on what they have, they multiply it so that more people are released and unleashed. It's never about the few, it's always about the many. But this is a shift, perhaps, in the mentality of the church that the Holy Spirit has been calling us to. I often try and take people back to what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. From the beginning, Jesus came and he preached the kingdom, but he demonstrated the kingdom as well. And from the beginning as well, he called disciples to be with him, not simply to watch him and to record it, but to be trained by him to do the things that he himself was doing. I often point people to Mark chapter 3, where it says that Jesus went up a mountain, he prayed, and then he called those he wanted, they came to him, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So from the beginning, Jesus gives us this rhythm in the Christian life of being with him, that's intimacy, but also being sent by him in the same power, with the same authority. In John chapter 20, it says, with the same Holy Spirit, he sends us as the Father sent him. And actually, often as Christians in this part of the world, 
maybe from the more restrained West. We're more comfortable with the intimacy. We're more comfortable with coming and enjoying a personal quiet time with God or a personal encounter with God, even in a corporate gathering. But there's a boldness, there's a, there's a sending, a commissioning that needs to happen. We need, as the church, to rediscover our authority, to rise up and to go out. And it may be that not being able to have gatherings will help us move beyond being consumers, people who go somewhere to get something, and instead will help us to engage with what we have and the direct access that we have with God that doesn't need to be mediated through any human being. It's going to be a season, perhaps, where the Holy Spirit is going to unleash the church to be the disciples that Jesus envisaged. Now, it doesn't mean that leadership isn't involved, which is good news for me and the rest of the staff, because you see in the passage that Barnabas comes up and he's able to bless what God is doing. And he calls for Saul, who's able to come and join him. And together they teach. Saul's been converted in, in between chapters 8 and 11. And they teach and they build up. And it says here that for the first time at Antioch, the believers were called Christians. And it's worth reflecting upon that because what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, sometimes we take it as meaning simply a follower of the Christ. But remember, Christ means the person who is anointed. Christ is the Greek word for which the Hebrew is Messiah. Messiah and Christ both mean to be anointed. And so to be a Christian is to share in some small way, perhaps, the anointing of Jesus. Now, a final thought. As the disciples are being released, it says a great number of people turn to the Lord. I think this is what we're seeing as well. The Holy Spirit using the circumstances not just to fulfill the plan, not just to release the church, but ultimately and most importantly, to have Jesus preached afresh to those who don't yet know him. There's a real emphasis here on the gospel and that needs to be something that we keep speaking about at this time. The Lord's hand is with those who preach Jesus. Now, lots of churches are doing fantastic online worship offerings. I'm really grateful for all that the team are contributing to our shared worship life. And what we're seeing, though, is it's not really about production levels. It's not about being impressive. People are drawn in by the relational aspect, being real, being hopeful. Many people, of course, who wouldn't normally attend church are finding that it's easier to click on a link than it is to crush the threshold of a building. And so they're participating in our streams. And we've heard of people coming to faith as they've joined us through some of these recordings. Just think about it. If you weren't a Christian, but you were interested in what goes on in church, wouldn't this be the perfect time to, to have a look, to connect without too much commitment? And what we want to make sure is that anybody who's in that category, who's listening to this or any of our other talks, please do email us, contact at asww.org.uk or give us a call. We'd love to kind of continue this. And it might well be that in the online format, which is a bit less threatening, then we could perhaps look at an alpha course or we could read the Bible together one-to-one. -to -one. I did a talk shortly before we weren't able to gather anymore. We had, at the beginning of March, the New Wine National Leaders Conference. And uh, the theme of that conference was setting our sails to catch the wind of revival 
that we believe the Holy Spirit wants to send. Setting our sails. We can't organize it. We can only pray for it. But we can get ready for it. We can position ourselves to receive what God is doing and to run with it. And I gave a talk based on um, a few verses from 2 Kings chapter 7. 2 Kings 7 is a time of famine where the church, the people of God at that time, is besieged. They're locked away. The king of Israel is at his wit's end. He doesn't know what to do. And in this time of famine, food has become incredibly expensive. The king comes to the prophet Elisha and says, what are we going to do? And Elisha says very, very simply, this time tomorrow, food will be so cheap, it'll be completely reversed. You won't believe it. And the officer on whose arm the king leaned says, I can't, I can't, I can't believe this. How could that possibly be? And Elisha speaks very challenging words to him because of his lack of faith. He says, you will certainly see it, but you will not eat of it. And so I was reflecting on this belief that's growing that God will do something because of all the prayer that's going up, because of the growing need of the world, because we're historically overdue for revival and for the sake, the honor of his name. We believe that God will move. And I was challenging the leaders who are at the National Leaders Conference for New Wine, challenging them to say, we don't want to be in that category, like the officer who would see it, because it's going to happen, but wouldn't be able to eat of it. The passage goes on to talk about four very unlikely men who unlock what God is doing, and those who are able to eat it and to receive of it. And these men are lepers. They're at the gate of the city, and they think they're going to die. They're surrounded by an army, they're outside the gate, they can't go into the city and there isn't really much point anyway. As lepers, they wouldn't be allowed in. When they got in, all they would do is end up in a position of famine. They're dying where they are and they realize the only option they have is to go out and to confront the enemy, go and face the enemy in his camp. And what they discover is as they go out is that in the night, God has won a great victory. God has put fear into the hearts and minds of the, the army surrounding the city, and they have all run away in terror, leaving their camp, their gold and their goods, and crucially, all of their food and drink, just leaving it for anybody to walk in. And because the lepers have nothing to lose, they go out, they confront the enemy, they discover that God has won a victory, and they're able to eat and be satisfied. And the good and godly thing is that they realize that this is not just for them. There's more than they can enjoy themselves, and so they bring the good news back to the city. And I was suggesting that that might be the posture that we need to adopt in order to embrace what God, I believe, wants to send. To realize that we're desperate, we have no other option. To go out boldly, believing and discovering as we do so that God has already won a victory, and to be satisfied ourselves with the good things that God sends, always remembering that they're to be shared with others as well. Our friend Nicola Neal gave a prophetic word, which I asked her to speak to close that um, short talk. And she pointed me back to uh, the, the song from the 70s. You might remember it. I hear the sound of rustling in the leaves of the trees. Um, the chorus perhaps more familiar. My tongue will be the pen of a ready writer. and What the Father gives to me, I'll sing. But just let me read the last verse. A body now prepared by God and ready for war, 
The prompting of the Spirit is our word of command. We rise a mighty army at the bidding of the Lord. The devils see and fear, for their time is at hand. The children of the Lord hear our commission, that we should love and serve our God as one. The Spirit won't be hindered by division in the perfect work that Jesus has begun. So in other words, there is an, a, a raising up. The Holy Spirit is raising up his army and sending us out with good news, discovering that God has already gone ahead of us. There are lots of people out there who, through this great time of shaking, are more open to the gospel than they've ever been. Don't think that people aren't interested, but let's let the Spirit of God take us to people that he's already prepared, where he's working in their hearts. So what I'm saying is, in this time of difficulty, in this time of coronavirus pandemic and lockdown and scarcity and insecurity about the future, continue to pray the Lord's Prayer. Pray for the coming of the kingdom. We don't need to see human society progress in terms of prosperity. The kingdom of God is forcefully advancing and forceful people lay hold of it. The kingdom of God grows every time another person gives their heart to Jesus. That's how the kingdom of God grows. Actually, as the church grows through Acts 8 and Acts 11, as the gospel goes over boundaries, firstly to Judea and then to the Gentiles, well, it's really interesting that the end of that chapter begins, uh, end, the end of that chapter points us to a, a bit of a downbeat note, actually. It says in verse 27 that during this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and one of them through the Spirit predicted a severe famine. It meant that actually after the time of persecution, it wasn't going to be all rosy or easy. Instead, there were going to be hard times ahead still. But even that wouldn't stop the church going forward. So maybe what this is saying to us is continue to pray for the kingdom to come, for the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven. But don't be looking for the world to go back to normal. Don't be looking for things to go back exactly the way they were. Instead, listen to what the Spirit might be teaching us. The Spirit of God is going to use the circumstances we find ourselves in. He's going to use them to advance his plan. He's going to use them to release the church into an awareness of what we got that we can't lose. And he's going to use it to create new ways for Jesus to be preached. I'd love to pray for you now that you and I would both be part of this new thing that the Holy Spirit is doing, that he wants us to hear and understand and receive so that this time is not just going to be a time that we're going to put behind us as soon as it finishes and say, we're so grateful that's over. But we'd be able to know that even through this hard time with all of its difficulties, God has done a new thing in us. He's pruned us to bear more fruit and he's also helped us to see what he wanted to do, to hear what he's trying to say, so we can be the people of God for what comes next. So I just encourage you to be still, to open yourself to the presence and the power of God. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would draw close to every person who's listening to this recording. We want to hear your voice. And we want to respond with hearts of faith.
And as we pray the kingdom prayer, your kingdom come and your will be done here, as it is this moment perfectly being done in heaven. We pray that for our world. But we want to say to you, Lord, that we understand that sometimes human society doesn't get better. Difficulties remain. But we put our faith in the kingdom of God, not in the circumstances of the world. We ask, Lord, that your kingdom would forcefully advance during this time. That more people, men, women, children, would bend the knee to Jesus. That you would use this time for the revival of the nation. Now just take a moment, ask God for whatever he might want to say to you about the pruning that he's doing in your life, about the authority that you already have and that he wants to increase, about the people that he wants you to take the good news of Jesus to. Jesus wanted us to understand that as we pray the kingdom prayer, we are also kingdom agents who are sent in response to that prayer. And so we ask, Lord, that you'd make that true for us. And we say to you, yes. Yes, Lord. Unleash your church for the sake of the world. In Jesus' name. Mm -hmm.